listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3RRR. You are listening to the Breakfasters podcast for the very short week of the 22nd of April to the 26th of April. We had two days off this week. It was yes. rewarding, to say the <laughs> least. We did some other good things, though, when we did work. We sure did. Uh, we got to chat to Michael Harden for Food Interlude. He talked to us about mushrooms. Shrooms. They're basically aliens. Yes. Yes. And also, just put a bit of soy sauce in there. <laughs> yum, yum, yum. Uh, and also had a chat um, about the um, iconic uh, group called Celeb Five from Korea that were on at the comedy festival. Yeah, we caught up with Rebecca Traster. She was in talking about her book, Good and Mad, The Revolutionary Power of Women's Anger. And then we caught up with the people behind the new show, The War on the Effing Election. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. Good and Mad, The Revolutionary Power of Women's Anger is a new book out in Australia via Simon & Schuster. Its author, Rebecca Traster, is speaking with Claire Claire Wright tonight at the Athenaeum as part of the Wheeler Centre's Mayhem program. Right now, though, she's joining us in the studio. Welcome to Breakfasters. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for coming in, particularly after your long trip from America yesterday. It's great that you're in so early. You begin this book by talking about a scene from an extraordinary documentary called Year of the Woman. What was that documentary and why did it mean so much to you? It was a documentary that I'd never heard of. I've been a feminist journalist for 15 years now in the United States, and I'd read a lot about feminist history, political history in the United States, and yet I'd never seen a documentary that was made about the 1972 Democratic National Convention. It was the convention at which Shirley Chisholm, who was a New York congresswoman, ran for president. She was the first African-American congresswoman ever elected in the United States, and she made a presidential run in 1972. And at the convention, she didn't, she didn't win enough votes, but she did get a few delegates. And she went to the convention to give a speech. It was also the height of the women's movement, the second wave women's movement in the United States. And there had been this incredible documentary made about the fury and the fighting over abortion, over the place of women within a democratic party, which is what the United States has passing for a left, right? Mm -hmm. And the documentary itself had sort of been hidden in amber. It had been released to sort of sold out crowds for a few days in 1973, and then someone had bought it up and no one had seen it until 2015, at which point I was assigned to write about it. And it was it was like looking at something that had been caught in amber, This the height of that second wave feminist fury where women were screaming at each other and wearing paper mache crocodile masks. They were so angry. And it's weird. It's very, it feels very dated and it could feel comic. And there, there's a little bit of, there's humor there. But to me, watching it in 2015, which of course was before the 2016 election, um, I thought to myself at the time, God, this is what we need. We need this level of fury and engagement. I don't, whatever, crocodile masks, terrific. Mm. We need to be more engaged in this fight. And it did not feel as though we were. And of course, we were not. And this is, you know, what landed us, you know, not two years later, in part with Donald Trump. Uh, The other uh, element in the introduction, you describe writing a column for the New Republic that perhaps unexpectedly goes Mm -hmm. viral. Can you tell us what that's about and how it relates to this documentary? Uh, Yes. Well, in part, it's uh, as a feminist journalist for a decade and a half, I obviously... I wouldn't do the work that I do if I weren't furious about gendered inequality, racial inequality, economic inequality, the environment. I mean, fury undergirds the very job that I do. And yet, as a woman in the world, I have been raised to understand that if I lead with fury, 
I become comical or I undermine my own points. I'm heard as hysterical mm. or unserious, over-emotional. And so as a writer, for years, I took great pains to make my anger, the anger that was the meat of what I was writing about, palatable to readers by being funny and casual and ironic and self-deprecating and all those things that sort of comforted everybody. Don't worry, my anger is not going to burn you. It's not, I'm not, I'm not crazy. And part of when I came to write this book over the past couple of years about the power of women's anger in a political context and how it has always been politically potent, part of what I came to see is that all those messages telling us to hide our anger or make it into something else are part of taking away its power. People understand the power of women's rage at inequality and at injustice. And part of the messages that we get to quell that anger and to not let it loose are part of suppressing its political power. And that's part of what this part of what this book is about is what happens when the anger actually bubbles over. What happens when you stop? And, and the column that I wrote that you refer to, I was I was writing for the New Republic. I was largely pregnant. I was furious about a couple things having to do with my own um, pregnancy and work life, and I was furious about political decisions that were being made around me in the United States. And I wrote out of raw fury. I was so livid that I didn't take any pains to make it palatable and nice and easy on the ears. And to my shock, and they just published it. I couldn't believe my editor published it and to my shock that but I, I think it was about 2015 that was the first um column I ever had that went truly viral um it was it, and I couldn't believe that was my first experience of watching rage connect to other people not be something that divides people or that pushes away but rage bringing in readers who felt, oh, no, I know that feeling. I know that feeling, and I see it so rarely expressed. And it's not something you can fake. It's not like I write all my columns angry. In fact, yeah. I don't. You know, I don't. Um, the book itself is about anger, and it's angry in places, but it also has all those things, comedy and, and self-deprecation, right? This is how we learn to communicate in the world. But writing that column out of pure, unadulterated, and undisguised fury was a great lesson to me in, in anger's communicative powers. And we're never taught that positive lesson about how it can reach people, mm. not just push them away. Well, you always make the point in the book that the right have kind of harnessed rage and anger, particularly women on the right. Uh, you talk about the rise of the Tea Party, mm -hmm. Sarah Palin. In Australia, we've seen it with figures like mm -hmm. Pauline Hanson. Why have the right been able to harness anger in a way that helps their cause, whereas the left haven't? In part, it's because the anger is on behalf of the power structure. It's not anger at the power structure and its brokenness and its inequalities. So in the United States, the anger of Sarah Palin, who can call herself a mama grizzly and talk about ferocity and how she's going to... She's fundamentally defending a white capitalist patriarchy in the Republican Party, um, which in the United States is the party that defends and supports that white capitalist patriarchy. And so she can be deployed, in fact, usefully as a woman who is, we know, subjugated within that system in, in various ways. Um, she can be deployed as its greatest weapon and her anger used on behalf of the structure that would suppress her. Whereas people coming from outside the structure who are angry, people saying, actually, this system is wrong and needs to be broken and remade, their anger is incredibly threatening because the anger can connect them to other people who make a coalition. The coalition can lead to organizing, and it's that organizing that is responsible, not just in the history of the United States, but obviously the history around the world, for creating some of the social movements that have made the most dramatic changes and broken those systems, whether you're talking about, um, you know, abolition or, or suffrage, the right to vote, um, those things have been made by 
by social movements that are put together by angry people outside the system. But if you're if you're arguing on behalf of a right wing, you're arguing for the system. Okay. The spur of the book, of course, and you've touched on this, is the election of Donald Trump and everything that went along with that. Can you tell us about the mood in those first weeks after the election of Donald Trump, in, in particularly around the Women's March and that explosion mm. of um, activism that took place then? Well, the Women's March was crucial because it broke the mood that had that had persisted for the weeks after the election of Donald Trump. After the election of Donald Trump in the United States, there was just a kind of paralyzed shock. Um, I had covered Hillary Clinton's campaign as a journalist. And so I was simultaneously not at all shocked that she had lost and completely shocked um, by the fact that Donald Trump was going to be president. Both things were true. And I think I I was not alone in that. There was Mm -hmm. just a sort of... everything was still and scared. And then the organizing of the Women's March, which was also fractious, I should say. There were all kinds of conversations around the Women's March about, is this going to be co-opted by white women, white women who did not come out to vote, who did not do the work of organizing around the Clinton campaign or standing up to Donald Trump? Are they going to come and have this march? And there was fighting about that. I view that fighting as tremendously productive. This is what Audre Lorde, the the feminist academic and, and poet, told us in the 80s, is that angry dialogue between allies is productive and generative. And I think it was, because because there was all kinds of fra- friction and um, fractiousness around the organizing of the Women's March. And then the Women's March, the day after his hor- Donald Trump's horrifying um, speech when he, was, um, when he was sworn in, where he talked about the death and the destruction, and it, was, and it was incredibly dark. The next day, this outpouring, the biggest single day political demonstration in the history of the country. And of course, it was global. Right, mm, it was here yeah, too. Yeah. It was it was all over the world. It was in six hundred cities. Um, it was this feeling like, wait, there's there's something to be done. Um, there are people who care. There are people who are engaged. And and it was it was ang- it was a joyous anger and outpouring. And I think that radically changed the mood of the country. It, and that's part of the power of fury. We are taught to think of fury as a negative, but fury can also pull people onto the streets in communion and to meet one another. And then they start organizing. And we have seen that happen in the United States. Again, the messages to contain our fury are messages ultimately to not talk about how we might get together and change the system. Mm. Despite this this fury, though, Donald Trump from the outside seems still popular within America. There is support for him. So what's gone wrong there? Why, mm. why if we've got all of this fury and we have this backlash, why is he still popular? Well, he's historically unpopular. He, is, he has remained solidly popular with his base. Yes, yeah. But his base is about 40%. And this is 40 42% at sort of its... It's height right now. And this is an intractable problem, which is that 42% of the United States is very invested in a certain power structure, and Donald Trump perfectly represents that power structure. It is a power structure that that is, is white nationalist, that is anti-immigrant, that is fundamentally racist and misogynist. It is the sort of the oldest version of all the broken ways in which the United States was built and who it was meant to exclude. Donald Trump represents those old interests. His slogan is correct. If you think greatness was a a functioning and exclusive and unjust white patriarchy, there are, there is a 42% in the United States who are invested in that, even though it oppresses many of them, including it's women and certainly it's, it's uh, low earners. Mm. However, the fact that that 42%, the problem is also in terms of how our elections work, because 42% should be able to be defeated. Donald Trump lost the popular vote by millions of votes. So 
I think that there it, it is a stubborn devotion to him, but that devotion actually represents a real rift in the United States about what kind of country must we become? Or do we want to return to the worst things about what we've been? And yes, there is a a hefty percentage of the country that wants that return, but there's a greater percentage that wants something different. And the question is, can that majority find a way to organize, to fight, and to fight against systems, including election systems that work to suppress the vote, an electoral college that means Donald Trump is the president with a minority number of votes? Can we, can those of us in the majority who want something different for the future, can we figure out how to get ourselves represented. That was the founding promise of the United States, was a representational democracy. We do not have it, and that is the fight that's in front of us. The book is Good and Mad, The Revolutionary Power of Women's Anger. It's out through Simon & Schuster. You can catch the its author, Rebecca Traster, speaking tonight with Claire Wright at the Athenaeum for the Wheeler Centre Mayhem program. It starts at 7 o'clock. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Free Triple R. Time for food interlude here on Breakfast. It's time to say good morning to Michael Hudden. Hey, good morning. I'm great. Excellent. What are we talking about today? Uh, I thought that seeing that it's uh, the beginning, we're just entered a wild mushroom season, that um, I might, uh, you know, start with a public service announcement and go, remember to only eat what you know you're eating so you don't mm-hmm. die when you're, when you're mushrooming. <laughs> so that's just, yeah, I just thought, you know, just, just don't do die. that as public. <laughs> don't die. So um, avoid something called a death cap. It's sort of the name says it all. Mm. Um, so um, other than that, but sort of have a little field guide when you, if you're mushrooming during wild mushroom season. But I also thought, like, I was, I was thinking about it and thought we could talk just a little bit about how amazing mushrooms are. Um, they're, they're this incredible species. There's, like, 350 species of mushroom that we eat um, worldwide, and it's a $65 billion annual business, the mushroom business. Um, but they're sort of... They're also this real... They're these really amazing organisms that are actually closer to animals than they are to plants. So, Isn't that incredible? Yeah, mm. so they have... Um, they've got um, chemicals in them that are similar to, say, crustaceans and insects, and they don't... They're, they're, they're not plants at all because they don't... There's nothing about... There's no chlorophyll um, stuff going on with mushrooms. They, they feed from... Um, well, sort of several sources, but mainly from um, or get dead organic matter that they that they um, consume, and um, and the uh, they're also there's also the couple of the other ones where they have a symbiotic relationship with other plants, which is cool. uh, say something like truffles, so that they will be in the the roots of trees and that they they help bring water to the tree and the tree feeds the the truffle, and then there's the other ones which are um, they're parasitic yeah. and they will actually they will kill plants. They actually, but you know, to the benefit of humans, there, there's a couple of them that are really good. So, say, um, a parasitic fungus, for example, is botrytis, which uh, attacks grapes and makes um, ends up making really lovely dessert wine oh. for us. And then there's <laughs> Thank also you. The, great result. Yeah, exactly. Also, the uh, the smut fungus in Mexico, no, which doesn't it, sound good. It doesn't sound good, but it's actually really delicious. It uh, attacks corn and it makes the corn sweeter. And it's a really big thing in Mexico. They can it and they eat it fresh and all that sort of stuff. So they're sort of like there's all these these benefits to these mushrooms and um they sort of um the 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 mushrooms that we eat are actually the fruit 
of the fungi. So they're sort of like they're not actually the the actual fungi itself. That is like this sort of sci-fi sort of creature that lives under the earth with lots of these different um, sort of filaments. It's called a mycelium. Kind of like a, a root system. Like a really yeah that you can't like it lives under like in organic matter or in the soil mm. or around and it sometimes they can spread to like hectares. It can mm. be one single organism and then it sprouts mushrooms. That can be oh, eaten cool. afterwards. Yeah, it's sort of like they're really they're quite interesting. They're is sort it of cool or is it creepy? It's kind of creepy. Bit of both. Sort of, yeah, yeah, I'm surprised yeah. it isn't a horror movie featuring yeah. mushrooms. Yeah, yeah, I know. Mm. Well, I think that they're sort of like yeah. I did read a book the other day about a fungus that takes over the world and eats people's brains. There so we go. Sort of <laughs> slow moving, you know that sort of stuff. So um, sorry, just quick, where does yep. toadstools? come into it or not at all like i oh, good like, question jess yeah i don't know i think but they would be by the look of them they're the same because they they're fast growing like a mushroom you know how you see mushrooms and they they kind of pop up out of nowhere they're they're mm. not there and then they're there yeah it's all to do with the way that they um that they eat and that they feed and mushrooms are sort of the fruit which is what mushrooms are the mm. fungus um are born with they don't um their cells don't actually they don't multiply they're born, they sort of, they come with the, an exact number of cells and then the way they grow is because they suck water up into the cells and it's the cells and that expands the cells. So that's why they can move so oh, quickly. Right. And some mushrooms, the way that they spore is that they, um, they evaporate water more quickly and so when they're sporing, which is like, you know, they're basically that dust that comes out of mushrooms, they, they evaporate the water quickly and it blows it away a bit so it's got mm. more chance of spreading so they're really like you know amazing. and you know where you, you think about the things that we use them for so that you know penicillin is all from uh, fungus and uh, things like you know when you're looking at cheese you've got you know blue cheese and um, camembert and everything they're all from fungus as well um, and uh, yeast is a fungus so you're mm. looking there again you've got um, you know there, there's you know without we no bread no beer oh. It's All like hail of fungus. I know, yeah. exactly. It's sort of like this is the, the, that's what I'm leading to, is building a statue in honour of the mushroom in front of Parliament House. But, but, um, and they've also got, you know, and then there's the, the, they've got all these anti-ageing oxidants in them and that sort of stuff. So it's, uh, you know, and nutrition-wise they're amazing. They're, they're full of B vitamins and they're the only non-meat source of B12. And, um, and the other thing that you can do with mushrooms is um, if you put them in the sun, like humans, they start producing vitamin D. So mm. one that's been grown underground will have no vitamin D, but if you pop your mushrooms in the sun for 30 to, 40, 30 to 60 minutes, they will start producing it and give you like a, a sup of vitamin D supplement. So they're... Um, a they're, miracle plant. They're really quite amazing. Yeah, now comes the real miracle. Oh. Um, this 2012 study in Yale that they've continued to look at, there's a mushroom that they found or a fungus that they found which... Turns, has mushroom fruit in the Amazon rainforest that found can feed on plastic, so polyurethane, and nothing else. What? And so, and it, it becomes a mushroom. The fruit that it has is edible. So no. you can, oh so God. it's got, it smells a little like um, anise and has a little, a sweetish flavour, but it doesn't take up any of the toxins. So it eats plastic. So all waste plastic. And so they're looking, scientists are already looking at um, propagating it underneath landfill because it doesn't need oxygen. So it can grow without oxygen. And then we can just hook it down. Yeah. So it's like, you know, it's uh, it's the most amazing thing that you've got these mushrooms that are, you know, able to chomp through plastic. And they break plastic down um, 
at this rapid rate, like plastic sort of anywhere, you know, decades to centuries before it will break down. We're talking months here in the in the trials oh that they're doing. Geez. So it's sort of like, you know, and they're going at sort of community compost systems and stuff they might be able to use it. What are they eating in the Amazon, though? I mean, there's no plastic. Well, they don't need to eat plastic. Right. But they just, they're capable of it. So, so it's still in the sort of the research stages, but they're sort of looking at the moment, like, you know, you're looking at it, it's like a... A you know something that eats waste material that's nutritious and it's, it's uh, mushrooms will save us all. Yeah, yeah, yeah they're they're out. I mean, they they also they're already doing some stuff um, like uh, they're 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 converting them to um, biofuel um, as well. So they're sort of they can use waste agricultural material oh. and uh, they convert that to biofuel. On oh, the other thing with the with the, the amazing plastic eating mushroom that um, <laughs> that you probably would have heard of because it was at um, it was announced at last year's State of the World's Fungi event in <laughs> London. <laughs> So you're probably all over this already, so I'm just, you know, repeating what you already know. Remind our listeners. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's sort of like the risk of repeating yeah. myself. But um, they are, they're also, they also, the, the organic material. So when they, when they eat the plastic, they, they produce organic material like mushrooms mm-hmm. always do. They're sort of, it's like a compost system. Um, so this organic material that they um, are producing, they're using to make these bricks, these mushroom bricks of these sturdy, fantastic building materials no as well. Oh. So... This is, it really is like a superfood. Yeah, like I, a literal yeah superfood. either superfood or something that's going to take us over. Yeah. Okay. I think. <laughs> that's exactly so, what I was thinking because yeah. there's a lot of plastic and if it eats... Yeah. It's, it's all just going to get yeah, yeah. bigger I think that, you know, it's like there's a sci-fi movie and, you know, the big plastic floating yes. thing in the middle of the ocean, like, you know, a ship sailing along and all of a sudden it rears up as, oh. you know, oh. a giant fungus and takes the ship out. But we'll so. just turn it into bricks. Yeah, turn it into <laughs> bricks or the, or the mushrooms will turn us into bricks. Just oh. quickly before we let you go, do you like eating mushrooms? I so love eating how mushrooms. How does one cook them? What is? Yeah, could you give, for someone that isn't a massive mushroom fan, is there a one simple kind of oh, mate, way I'll, of cooking them? Can I have a go? Yeah, please. All you want to do is just heat up a pan, put a bit of oil, oil in there. Put olive oil, oh, put your mushrooms in there. That's yum. how I cook everything. Yeah. <laughs> bit of olive oil, bit of salt. See, because my favourite is to do them on, like, just mushrooms on toast, which I think oh. is great. But you have to cook them, you like, chop them up, and then you have to cook them with oil and butter salted oh. butter mm. and then you cook them down really slowly until they start to caramelise a little bit mm. and then finish them off with some soy sauce at the end oh. so it just gives you a really great dash of that and it kind of it's sort of everything sort of melds together and there's sort of salty umami deliciousness uh, on toast so give that a go mate I will bring some of that in yeah. on Thursday on Friday <laughs> <laughs> thanks so much Michael Hutton no as always okay thanks three triple Who do you think was like the the biggest um, name that the comedy festival had? Oh, oh like international. Mm. Maria Bamford. Yeah, it's pretty. Yeah, it's pretty up there. Uh, what if I told you it was um, a group called Celeb Five? I would Celeb Five. Think you were making it up. Mm. Oh. Exactly right. So there's this group. Uh, they're they're from Korea. Ah. Oh. Oh. Yeah, so this um, so this is a cool thing about the festival that they, they quite often um, bring you know not just internationals from you know England and European yeah. countries, US headliners. Yes, and, yeah. it's 
they go to you know Asia and bring across you know Indian comics and Malaysian comics and 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 also from Korea. Now this group, <laughs> I um I first they were, did um upfront, which is the all female gala. So I yeah. was just out the back. Um, with them in the in the backstage room, Jeff, he's trying to look them up. I was still. just looking them up. Yeah, yeah. That's, why, uh, that's why he looks like he's not listening to you at all. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and there there was this the four women. I think there used to be five. There's only four now, but still, it's funny. Celeb five, and they've just and they were wearing these fun outfits, and I just I didn't think too much of them because I'm so used to having you know right. yep. these internationals, you know. Um, come over and, and, and do bits and pieces. So I was just like, oh, hi, nice to see you all. And, um, you know, I was quite friendly with them. And then uh, I – and then they – so they did up front and I kind of had to leave before they were on. But um, – and then the next day they, – so they were in Melbourne. They, they were only doing three shows yep. while they were here. Um, so they did up front and then they did the big laugh out So at, at Fed Square. So Comedy Festival puts on like a free show at Fed Square. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, you know, people just – it's a kind of very much a family-friendly kind of just pop down and sit there, watch the show. Nice. Uh, and then they um, headlined at the festival club like on Friday night. And so they did uh, – yeah, on Thursday afternoon. Oh, so Friday afternoon was the big laugh out, and then Friday night was festival club, and I was on the festival club with them, um, and I had no idea how much of a thing they were. Really? How did you discover it? Well, I found it that day when they had done the big laugh out because it was free. So up front was a bit different because all the tickets had already been sold. So their fans. Yep weren't really aware right. that they were going to be there, so it was just kind of, you know... But then they all knew that they were going to be at Fed Square. And then to they had to leave by um, horse and cart like because taxis couldn't get to them because the fans wow. were kind of... Oh, my they were God. Being mobbed oh by my fans. God. Yeah. And so... So they, they were hustled into a horse and cart. Yes. <laughs> Which they then managed to convince them to take them back to their hotel. That's that is awesome. pretty awesome. Isn't it? How cool is that? Hustled into a horse yeah. and cart. <laughs> go, go, go. But it was just like the... I think they, they did do a lap on the, the horse and cart, so they waved to... No. Yeah. And then they managed to like, like convince the royal them. family. Yes. Yeah. Exactly like the... And I was just... I was listening to this just going, oh, my... This is the best. Did you see any of their act? Yes. Now is it so? It's very K-pop. So it's, it's like a parody ah. of K-pop. Is that sort of? Yeah, I think so. So they just they just dance to K-pop songs. So, um, and it's kind of have this like um eighties kind of vibe oh, to yeah, it. Oh yeah, people... it's like they're wearing kind of eighties sparkly eighties power suits. Yeah, and yeah. And eighties makeup. And they're yeah. Um, and then it's, so then at Festival Club, so I heard about this horse and cart situation at Festival Club and then before the doors open and then the doors open and I swear like at least half of the audience were Korean and they all sat down at, at the front and I've just, I've never seen anything like it before, especially really? at the at the comedy, you know, festival club. So it was like they had some of them had they, so many people had signs, some of them had masks that they were wearing oh, wow. of them, and they were just and all of them like so many selfies and they're taking photos and they're so it was just like how oh, and we were cool. like 
how are we going to do comedy <laughs> in front of these who were just waiting for their... Oh Did they say, so how did they respond to you? Were you? Was it like less of a response to you? Uh, oh, it's a, yes. Did, did anyone have... <laughs> yes, yes. Did anyone have a mask of your face? No, <laughs> not that I saw. Uh, but it was funny, like the first actor that was on, because we were all kind of a bit like, what is... What is happening? Yeah. But and it's that interesting thing where you can take it in in two different ways. Like it was like, I think there was some comics there that were just like, oh, how, how are we going to perform in front of these people? Like they're not here to see us. Who cares what we do? And blah 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 blah. So and they which kind is of, fair. You can see why people would think that. Yes, absolutely. But I said, um, to, I was just because I just was so fascinated by it. I'm like. And this is amazing, like yeah. because they brought in such an amazing energy into the room. They were so excited, and that energy was just infectious to the rest of the room. So it was just like, it doesn't matter what you say up on stage, like they're they're going to laugh, and you know you make the people at the back of the room laugh, and that's going to filter down through the front, and they're yeah. just here to have a good time, you know. So they they just laughed, and they were you know polite and and stuff, and they weren't because they were in, it's still engaged in all the other comics that were on, but they were still they were very excited about Celeb Five. And did you have to understand in. K-pop or know about K-pop to get Celeb Five? Like if you didn't know, no, the they were just entertaining. You know, they just got up, they danced, and you know. Uh, they didn't speak or anything. Like, honestly, oh, they really? were just doing dances. Um, and not, they came out and they did uh, they did one dance and then they went off and did a costume change and came back on and did another dance. Um, and and they, was, are they funny dances or are they like? Uh, yeah, I guess I guess if you know more ab- about, about right. it, yeah, yeah. you yeah, would. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. But it was just like this incredible. Um, like when they first came out, I thought I my hearing was going to go with the oh, screaming. Really? Yeah, it was just, it was so much fun to be. It just automatically, I just went, I want to go to Korea. This is the best. It was so cool, and they were just like so, just screaming and singing along to all the songs and doing the backup bits of it oh. and stuff. And and then they did the costume change, and then they were like, oh my god, this is the best, and you know more screaming. And then they had to leave. By the fire exit. No. Like, yeah. So just had wow. uh, so at the you know as they were finishing, I just know there was security guards up the front, and then um, they got chauffeured all, off to the side to the to the fire exit, and then they left while the show was finishing. That's but, sick. Yeah. And I was just, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life. Are they gone now? They left the country. Yeah, yeah. <sighs> I know. And just those three shows that they were here for. I feel like I've missed out. Yeah. Makes me wonder, like, do K-pop stars come here all the time and just do shows that K-pop fans really get into that no one else? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I don't know. We do get K-pop stars come here from time to time, but but generally we know about it when they're in town because it's a big deal. Yeah, Yeah. it was just oh man, it was so cool. I would just. And then um, and just hanging out backstage with them and, and did you stuff. did you talk to them? Yeah, yeah, but they they had a translator. They didn't speak much English, okay. so but um, they had a translator there. And then I, I tried to get into there. They were taking selfies in the mirror, and I tried to get in the background. I'm like, oh, get more Instagram followers. Anyway, didn't work. Didn't work okay. no. <laughs> Three triple R. 
War on the Effing Election Tour is a show on at the Alex Theatre in St Kilda on Friday night at 7.30. Tell us all about it. We're joined by the writers and comedians, Charles Firth and James Schlofer. Welcome to Breakfasters. Thank you. Great to be here. Now, the Chasers teamed up with The Shovel, both for this show and for the official 2019 election guide. A lot of people might have thought two satirical papers were deadly rivals, but here you are collaborating. <laughs> it's, actually, it's actually a cartel. I think it's, <laughs> it breaks all sorts of competition laws to have um, you know two satirists um, just, just dominating the market, really, coming together. Um, did you think about getting the Batuta advocate involved as well? <laughs> we did. Uh, they weren't available. Um, they're, they're the news corp of the satire. <laughs> they're evil. <laughs> but no, so how did this this show and um, production come together? Um, I don't know. Well, no, well, you've got to cover the election. Like, um, <coughs> especially an election as hilarious as this. And the good thing is, so when we started writing satire, well, I, I started 20 years ago, you actually had to do a whole lot of work to come up with ideas to make things funny. Whereas now it literally writes itself. Like, you know, Barnaby Joyce does an interview, you transcribe the interview and then everyone thinks, oh, that's hilarious. Um, And so, you know, that's what this election's all about. It's just about transcribing what's happening, (laughs) putting it up on stage. And um, not to doubt your comedic talents, but it could be quite depressing. Wouldn't it? A blessing and a curse. <laughs> yes. <Well>, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it sounds great. <laughs> no, it, it's great. It's great fun. There's been so many great comedy characters over the last five or ten years. I mean, you know, Tony Abbott and Peter Dutton, Kevin Rudd. Um, they just keep popping out. And just just it's, when you think that you know one of them's mm. going to move out of the limelight, um, either they stick around like Tony Abbott or, or someone else pops up in their place. It's it's fantastic. Is there anyone in particular that you hope never goes away purely for comedic content? I'm a bit worried about Peter Dutton. Um, it looks like he <laughs> might lose his seat, which mm. would be a tragedy because he's a lovely comedy character. And, and we were discussing actually uh, the other day whether... Because we, we always do potato gags about Peter Dutton, mm. of course. And you sort of go, you know, that's like... Maybe the tenth potato <laughs> gag we've made about Peter Dutton in the last year. Do you think maybe we should retire that theme? No. And it's like no. <laughs> the audience loves the potato gags. <laughs> yeah, but Australian politics has changed so much in the last few years. I mean, I, I keep coming back every time I think of the Chaser. I think of that um, uh, stunt you did at APEC with Osama bin Laden, mm. and how if you did that today, you'd be killed by sniper fire almost. <laughs> well, I think I think we. I mean. That was definitely on the risk assessment um, that Chaz could be killed by sniper <laughs> <laughs> But I don't think that... <laughs> it was still dangerous back then as well. <laughs> but, but, I mean, the world and Australia has changed so much. Australian politics seems objectively so much worse than it was in the past. Has that sort of changed the way you go about doing something like an election show like this? Look, I don't... Are we I, beyond I, satire? I'm going to... I'm gonna, actually question the premise of your question. Ooh. Oh, I love which, it. Which, mm. which, <laughs> got serious all the time. <laughs> no, which is, I don't know whether you saw the AEC's press release last night, but um, 96.5% of people are enrolled to vote this yes. election. That's the highest in history. Um, for Amongst young people uh, up to the age of 24, it's now up to 88%, which is unprecedented. Like, there is a complete wave of um, young people who are sort of going, you know, the climate's changing, this is a disastrous sort of, you know, conservative, you know, rule that we've had that is also clearly corrupt. We've got to 
get involved to sort of thing. So I think I think we as sort of middle-aged white men um, sit around going, oh, isn't it terrible? Everything's terrible. But I think there's a real sense of urgency and a real sense of hope um, from a lot of people that that actually things can change. Sorry, can, this did turn serious. Can I, can, I just, <laughs> can I just counter that though, Charles? Because yesterday afternoon, Charles and oh, I yeah. spent 10 minutes at Southern Cross Station filming people, asking them a very simple question, which was, who is the Australian Prime Minister? And I would say 50% of people had no idea. We, we went in there really? thinking... Really? Not even be... a guess? What... Oh, we had some guesses. We had... Uh... <laughs> we had... We had um, well, for the... Uh, we had... Uh, Scott Morris was the Scott name Morris. that eventually somebody <laughs> came up with. We had Bill... Bill Kilton. Kilton. Yeah. Bill Kilton. And, then, yeah. and then somebody com- very, very, very confidently said, I know oh, the opposition leader, his name's Martin Short. <laughs> wow. <laughs> if oh only. <laughs> And so, were they Australians, or you weren't interviewing tourists? Well, well, there were a few New Zealanders that seemed yeah. to pop up, um, but no, we, we interviewed a lot of people, and we went in there thinking probably one in ten are not going to know. Um, mm. So we, you know, it's going to going to take a while to get um, those answers, but yeah. One and one and two, I think. Wow. There's something about ScoMo speaking of prime ministers that kind of almost you almost Scott can't Morris, Scott, you mean? Scott Morris, Scott Morris, <laughs> <laughs> that you almost can't mock, like just because he's so straight. Other than the cap, like has he been hard to to write about? How do you oh, mock him? Oh, I think he's he's just it's just that awful kind of daggy dad kind yeah, of figure, isn't that's he? True. And and just that. Oh, that you know, trying to be so Australian and the fair dinkum, you know, throwing it into every sentence. I feel Bill Short in his harder actually because he uh, is just so scripted. Captain yeah. Vanilla. Captain Vanilla, exactly. Every single line that he ever utters is written by some PR person, and um, I think that makes it really difficult. He just kind yeah. of sucks the humour out of a room. <laughs> <laughs> he, does. he sucks well, the energy out. And, and I, I had to write a comedy sketch where you sort of take the transcript of an interview and you put replace the questions. So, and I did it with Scott Morrison. That was really easy because he's sort of expansive and vague and just sort of says ridiculous it, things. Yeah. yeah. Whereas. Bill Shorten, the interview turned into a sort of um, can you ever go off script because everything he said was just on message. There was nothing to work with. And you go, that must be a strategy. Like no one could be that boring in real life. Now that is definitely his strategy. Like he's hoping people don't notice him and then he'll become Prime Minister. (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly right. Well, to return to my argument about how much worse things are, (laughs) will Captain Get Up be appearing? Well, you know, so when Captain Get Up got um, started... I set up a Twitter account also called Captain Get Up was with actually you? a better oh. handle, the Captain <laughs> underscore Get Up. Right, well, it, like lots of people did it, but my one got way more uh, likes and follows than the real Captain Get Up. So I, in fact, claim myself to be the legitimate <laughs> Captain, Captain Get Up. Yeah, yeah, it's like the battle of the Captain Get Ups. It's such a confusing. It's Isn't so it? confusing, and I know people in that electorate who who just say. Um, like most of the time, it, like you'd be standing with the real Captain Get Up, like the, the sort of anti Get Up, Get Up, Captain Get Up. Um, and people come up and say, you know, good work, keep up the good work. <laughs> <laughs> I say, no! Oh my God. Actually, when he came up, we did discuss, I was waiting for it to be announced as a chaser stunt. Yes. Yeah. And, and was, yeah. they got him before you. Uh, so, in your guide to the Australian election, you go through every seat. 
um, in the election, which must have been quite the task. Are there any particular seats that we should be watching from uh, a satirical point of view? <laughs> uh, well, I think Eden Monero is the one um, that uh, you sh- people always watch because the bellwether seat. Oh, um, the old bellwether. It's always, bellwether. It's always gone with the government. Um so that's the only seat that we didn't cover. <laughs> uh, in the stage show, it's not just you, the two of you. You also have um, Mark Humphreys and probably two of the most underrated comics we have in this yes. country, uh, Victoria Zerps and Jenna Owen, who we, people would know from um, SBS's The Feed. Mm. Um, tell us, uh, what's it like working with those guys? Amazing. Uh, so we started working with them. Well, end of last year, and they've brought this amazing thing to our show called talent, <laughs> uh, <laughs> because they 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 are they are amazing. They are so funny, um, so talented, and they just kind of steal the show, really. And yeah, well, actually, when we when we got when we started doing this show and just started advertising it, I had lots of people email in saying. Um, like, are those two girls coming along again? Because if so, I'll book tickets. <laughs> um, and Mark Humphries as well. Um, you know, a lot of people would know him. Um, also a wonderful performer. He's from uh, Pointless on, on Channel 10 and also ABC 7.30. And I was thinking about this. I think the Venn diagram for the people who watch Pointless and the people who watch 7.30 <laughs> wouldn't have any crossover. It needs to be two circles. Um, so he's certainly uh, covering his audiences there. But he's a uh, fantastic talent as well. So on Friday at the Alex Theatre, you're going to be on stage doing an election night panel. That's the format for it? Sort of. Uh, we, we, that was the premise that we started with. But actually, um, it's just turned into a comedy show. I mean, the premise is that we're live from the National Tally Room and we keep coming back to covering various seats and there's sort of... It's almost like it's an election night. Mm. Um, but then we cross to, to Victoria and Jenna and Mark who sort of provide, well, yeah, the talent mm. of comedy. <laughs> and then you've also got the official guide to the election 2019, the Chaser Shovel co Production, which you're launching tonight at Readings? Yeah, we're at uh, Readings in St Kilda. Yeah. Um, so that's, yeah, that's our official guide. It's 20 bucks. And it's it, very it, funny. It, thank you. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's it's in print, which yeah. is um, the future you know, can of Can I just talk yeah. about <laughs> <laughs> On the back, though, it has the um, a, an ad for Clive Palmer. Mm. And if you carry this around, it looks like I am <laughs> in full support of Clive Palmer. Uh, but, it, yeah. Yeah, it's just very funny. It's very well organised too. You've got the show and the book of the show coming out at the same time. Yes. It's almost like we planned it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, the war on the effing election tour is <laughs> on at the Alex Theatre on Friday night and you can come to the official launch of election 2019 at Readings St Kilda. Yeah, and it's free. It's, you just turn up um, and it, 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 like, it should be a really good night. Yeah. We've been talking to writers and comedians Charles Firth and James Schofield. Thanks very much. You're listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3RRR.